The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the days for Jesus' being taken up were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his reception there, but they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. As they were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But he answered him, Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. To him Jesus said, No one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. So in the Gospel reading today, we have two very distinct sections, and I want to look at both of them because they both teach us something very powerful and beautiful in our faith. So Jesus begins by walking to Jerusalem. This is this turning point in the Gospel of Luke where he's now going into Jerusalem where he is to be crucified, died, and rise again. And when Jews would travel from where he was down to Jerusalem, a lot of times they would go around Samaria. There was a lot of tension and historical conflict there. So in order to avoid it, they would literally bypass Samaria by by walking around it. And Jesus chooses to walk right down and through it. And when he goes through Samaria, it's said that he's shown no hospitality, none, from the people that are there. But what's fascinating, it had nothing to do with who he is. If you caught it, the reason they didn't show him hospitality was because of his destination. He was going to Jerusalem, the place the Jews would consider the house of worship, while the Samaritans believed that God was to be worshipped on the mountain, not in the city. And so we shouldn't be surprised that he receives a cold and dismissive reception. I was trying to think this week how to best describe that in terms you would understand and we could all understand. And it's like like a Packer fan going into a Bears bar on game day. The Packer fan should not be surprised when they spit in his food. When they refuse to give him a drink. And when they want nothing to do with him. And you can imagine any Packer fan brave enough to do something like that is probably looking to start a fight, right? So then he gets offended. He's like, you want to fight? You want it? This is what happens in the gospel reading. They reject Jesus and John and James says, Lord, do you want us to send down fire from heaven to consume them? Don't they understand who we are? Don't they understand who you are? This comes right after they confess that Jesus is the Christ, just earlier in the ninth chapter of Luke. But Jesus instead decides to spare them. He spares them. Why would Jesus do that? 
Why would Jesus do that for these ingrateful people who want nothing to do with him? Because he wants to give them a chance to hear the good news and believe. It's in Luke's continuation of his writing in the book of Acts that he writes in the first chapter before Jesus ascends into heaven that Jesus says to the apostles, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. He wants to give a chance for those who, who wanted nothing to do with him to hear the good news. And Jesus will use the very apostles who said, bring down fire upon them to preach that good news, to minister to them, to bless them. And this shows us a very important truth that Jesus never gives up on those who don't know him, who don't understand him, who don't welcome him, who don't give thanks to him. He never gives up. And neither should we. Because he never gave up on us. I have no doubt that there are many of us in here today, in this sanctuary, this moment, that at times in our life had wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Wanted nothing to do with him. Could never imagine a point in our life where we would actually be even sitting in a church. And at some point, Jesus completely and utterly turned us around. Sometimes quickly, sometimes over long periods of time. But the Lord had worked in our hearts. He never gave up on us. And he doesn't want us to give up on others. He's he's always calling out, follow me. See, when we look at other people, we don't know the outcome any more than we know our own outcome or where things are going in our own lives. We don't know how the Lord will shower people with his mercy and with his forgiveness. There are doubtless people here today. Have you, ever, have you ever seen someone and you thought to yourself, that person's too far gone? There's no hope for them. There's no way they'll ever come into a church. There's no way Jesus will ever be part of their life. There's no way. There are people here today in our sanctuary that they were told that that person would never love Jesus and here they are. Because God, because God never gave up on them. And there were probably people in their life who never gave up on them. There is always hope. And the power of Jesus, he doesn't give up. He's relentless and reckless with his love. And then we come to this part where Jesus continues on his journey and he encounters these three travelers. And the first says, unprompted, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus goes into this discourse about the animals of creation have have homes. But basically, I, I have no home here. There is no rest. I must keep going. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going after the confession, you are the Christ. He says, I must now go, die, and rise again. That's where he's going. The next person, he says, follow me. And the individual responds, let me first bury my father. It seems like a reasonable response. And Jesus says, no, you have to go. Let the dead bury their dead. You must go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to the third He says, I'll follow you wherever, but but first, let me say goodbye to my family. While the first section of the gospel shows us that Jesus always leaves that door open, that door of possibility open, here we see that Jesus isn't going to just sit and wait around. 
This idea we have that we can just say, well, Jesus, you just wait there. When I'm ready, I'll, I'll come and, and have, you, have you be part of my life. You just, you just wait. It's not the right time. Jesus doesn't sit and wait around. The days are few. They go quickly. No one knows when the last one is. And so he moves because there's always more to preach to. There's always people who don't know. And he wants to bring us into God's family to be adopted as his children. Is this your family? Is God's family your family? In Luke 8, Jesus is talking to the crowds and he says, my family is those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus today calls out, follow me. Do you hear the word of God and do it? Follow him. Do you hear his voice? Because the family that ultimately matters at the end of the day is the family of God. A lot of times we have this notion that we want God to be part of our family. Like, God, I want to put you into the family and it's right here and right there and that's, that's perfect. Like, we put them in this nice little place. He, he doesn't want to be put into our families. He wants to pull our families into his family. At the end of the day, blood can be important, but at the end of the day, I don't want my kids to, to be all hung up on me being their father. I want my children to know God as their father. And I want their children to know God as their father. That's what I care most about, is that they would be part of the family of God, not that they share the last name of me. Do we wish the same thing for our families? To be part of God's family. We, we, we say to God so often that it doesn't work for me. This call on my life, it doesn't work for me. Not right now, right in this moment, no. There's so many others to hear the word. He's not just going to wait around. Stop putting the Lord off. He's calling you to freedom. Maybe part of the reason we do this is because we're scared. We're scared of the freedom God offers us. Freedom from, from the, the things that enslave us in this world. Think of the things you get trapped up by. He gives us Freedom. I once was talking to a young man and I asked him, what was the number one priority or what was the number one motivating factor of, of humanity? And he said, survival. He said, at the end of the day, we're all trying to survive. Think, think of the money we spend to survive, to, to be healed, to feel better, to, to live a, a more awesome life, whatever it may be. Think of the money we pour into that and the intention and the time and the effort we pour into that. And I think it would be fair to say, yes, many of us seem to be motivated primarily by survival. But the problem is, is if survival is our number one motivator in life, we all fail. You will die. We all will. And what Jesus does is he frees us from this obsession with surviving. He frees us to no longer be afraid of death. Just before this, Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. There's a great cost to following Christ. But in giving up everything, we truly become free. Look at Elisha. I love the story of Elisha's call. Elijah comes, throws a robe on him, and Elisha knows something's going on and chases after him. Says, just give me a second, I'll be right back. 
He goes back. He slaughters his 12 yoke of oxen. That's 24 ox. He slaughters his 24 ox. That was his livelihood. He now has nothing to go back to. And in order that he not be tempted to buy another ox so he can plow the fields again, he takes the plow equipment, breaks it down, and uses that to start the fire to boil the flesh of the ox. He's got nothing left. He burned it all. It literally went up in flames. And then he distributes that to the people. He says, go have something to eat. He goes back to Elijah and says, okay, let's do this. That's the call God has on your life. What vestiges, what, what relics of your past are you clinging to? And the Lord is calling you to drop at his feet, to surrender them so you can embrace him, to receive his love, his love that is overflowing, his love that he pours out. He never has given up on us, even when we've given up on ourselves. He doesn't want us to be tied and slaves to our past. He wants us to be hopeful of our future, the redemption of all flesh, because it's in the hope of the resurrection we're truly free now to live. And he says, don't, don't use that freedom to just live and gratify your own desires. Don't use it to just do whatever you want. That's a lot of times what we think freedom is, the, the freedom to make really bad choices. He says, use the freedom to live for me, to love, to give. Don't cling, but be open. No longer afraid. Brothers and sisters, this is no longer afraid to die. So many of our motivations come from we're afraid to die, and if I just cling on, maybe I can have another day. We're, we're grasping for another day, and he's offering us eternity. But let's be honest, death is scary. Death is scary. Receiving the call from the doctor that the cancer's terminal. Or to see a seven-month-old in a medically-induced coma, not sure if they're ever going to wake. Death is scary. And so we don't just try to solve it. We go to Christ. We turn to Jesus. Because he brings hope in that darkness. Death is scary because it forces us to be honest about our own mortality. We have to guard against this we, we will come to Jesus later. Or I'll, I'll follow Jesus everywhere except, just give me a moment. If we're indifferent about Jesus, if we're dismissive about Jesus, how will anyone ever hear our witness? And how will Jesus ever truly be working in our hearts? First and foremost, Jesus, Jesus doesn't give up on you. He hasn't given up on you. If you're sitting there and you're like, I messed up again, That's, that happens. He hasn't given up on you and we confess our sins to receive his mercy. And he hasn't given up on your neighbor either. And he hasn't given up on your family, on your children who have wandered away. He hasn't given up. He, he hasn't given up on, on, the, on the people who are in your life. He doesn't water down the call. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, oh, whatever you want to believe. He doesn't do that. He calls you to the light of truth. He wants you to be convinced by his truth. But he never gives up. Th think of the passion. 
We have, I, I said it tongue-in-cheek at the beginning, but think of the passion we have for our sports teams. We are so convinced we have the right team. We will argue, argue people to death. If only you just understood that... What if we were so passionate about belonging to the family of God? And to see the people we love so dearly in our life to be part of that family too. And I have failed as much as you to, to look at my friends and my family and say, I, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, and I want you to know him too. At the end of the day, all of our possessions, all of our accomplishments, all of our accolades cannot save us. And in those moments, it's not the promises of things we've done in the past that we cling to. But it's the promise that God made in the waters of baptism that reassure us that we have life and life eternal. And he never gives up on us because of that promise. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.